0: Good morning, Faith on Hill. Welcome to our online Sunday Bible study. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. both online and in our field. Uh, If you haven't joined us uh, for a field service, what that is is we have a large field on our church property. Uh, We have pop-up tents spread out for shade. Um, There's plenty of room for distancing. Everyone is required to wear a mask, um, but there's plenty of room. It's as safe as you can make it. Uh, We have worship and Bible study, and we get to gather together live and in person. But we know that not everybody feels ready, or feels safe, or feels comfortable. being in public gatherings like that. We also know it's summertime, and and people are in and out of town. So uh, we continue to have an online presence. Uh, We already had an online presence before COVID happened. We're just upping our game. So uh, Sunday services are live and in person at 10.30 a.m. and they uh, premiere online at 10.30 a.m. as well. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark was not the witness to most of these events. Most, in fact, almost all scholars understand, and church history informs us, that Mark wrote down the account of Peter, the apostle, and that Mark was serving Jesus alongside Peter in the city of Rome, and it was there that he wrote down all of the things that Peter was teaching and, and telling people about the life of Jesus. This morning, the thing that Mark is trying to get across, I believe, is true greatness, the Christian definition of greatness. And that is this, gain everything by giving it all away. Gain everything by giving it all away. I'm a sports fan. I think that's understood. Who's the greatest of all time? The GOAT. Well, in football, it's Tom Brady. In basketball, it's Michael Jordan. In baseball, it's Ken Griffey Jr. And if you don't think it's Ken Griffey Jr., we can fight about that, but it it is. Who's the greatest of all time? In each of those sports, you can make an argument. You can say, this is why this person is the greatest. They have the most achievements, the most championships, uh, the statistical, data is all there to back up their greatness. You could see it on the field. They were great year in and year out. They are the greatest of all time. But when you talk about people, who's the greatest person that's ever lived? Who has done the most? Who is the most important? I have no doubt that I can get a group of Christians to agree that Jesus Christ is the greatest person of all time. I don't think I would have a hard time convincing a group of non-Christians that Jesus Christ would be at least among the greatest of all time and possibly the most influential person in human history. But why is he the greatest? What makes Jesus so great? He told people to love people. A lot of people do that. He, he did charitable works, acts of kindness. I could go and find 20, 30, 50 people with no, no problem, without breaking a sweat, who do charitable and, and kind acts, selfless deeds. What is it that makes Jesus Christ the greatest person to have ever walked the earth? We're starting here, Mark chapter 10 in verse 32, where it says they, went, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is God's word. And this was God's word to them. Guys, we're on our way to Jerusalem. And this is what's going to happen. It says that Jesus was leading the way and that some were astonished and others were afraid. But all of them are lagging behind. Not one of them is keeping pace with Jesus. The, the words used to describe the scene indicates that Jesus is at the lead of this procession heading to Jerusalem. And none of them is keeping pace. They're all behind. Now, some of them are astonished. They're amazed. They have faith. And some are afraid, but they're still going. I liked what J.R. Edwards, the the Bible commentator, said. He said, our discipleship is never as noble as we imagine it. I want to define that word, discipleship. If you are a disciple of someone... You are seeking to have that person actively replicated in your life. I mean, you can be influenced by somebody. You can be a fan of somebody. But have you ever seen somebody who dresses just like someone else does? They're trying to copy their style of dress, the way that they talk, the method that they live their life. There are people who are disciples of fitness experts— people who are disciples of, of certain cooks. If if Julia Child did it, then I'm going to do it too. There are people who, uh, in their attempt at athletics, are disciples of certain athletes. This is the way that this person prepares for a game. This is the way that they train their body, so I am going to replicate that in my own life. That's discipleship. So what Edwards is saying is, our discipleship is never as noble as we think. It. it We have these ideas, we've all seen these memes going around, you know, 2020 has been a horrible year, but 2020 has been a banner year for memes and gifs and the whole thing. And, And you've seen these memes, you know, what I think it looks like versus what it really is. And you may think, you know, you're really hot stuff. You're, you're, you're really doing great. Probably not as great as you think. But what this verse also shows us is that you might be doing better than you think. Because the people who were afraid are still following. It's interesting that Jesus accepts it. We've been speaking a lot about humility lately. Jesus doesn't say it's not good enough for me. He takes us where we are at. Yes, you're afraid. Yes, you're not keeping as close as you should, but I'm bringing you along. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, guys, this is what's going to happen. This is the plan. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will spit on him, flog him and kill him. Now, this is not our main point today. Over here, that's what we're talking about. Over here is the side tangent that I'm about to go on. So let's step over here for a minute. We're at the tangent. I grew up in a church and a Christian culture that was incredibly and still is incredibly supportive of Israel and the Jewish people. And I personally continue that. I am personally incredibly supportive of the nation of Israel. It's not a perfect nation. Uh, Certainly, there are things that they they have as a national policy I don't agree with. But in general, I am a supporter of Israel. And even more so, far beyond that, I am a supporter of the Jewish people. I believe that God still has a plan for His chosen people. In high school, I was shocked to discover anti-Semitism in the church. I remember watching Fiddler on the Roof for the first time. And the, the higher official comes to the town and tells the chief of police, you know, you must persecute these Jews. And the chief of police, who is a, a, a decent man, is, tries to defend the Jewish uh, population of the, of the town. And the, the official says to him, you want to help these people, these Christ killers? And as I have expanded my knowledge and my studies, I have come to understand how widespread anti-Semitism is in our world, and sadly how widespread anti-Semitism is in the church. And one of the reasons for this anti-Jewish prejudice is from this idea that they killed Jesus, therefore whatever they have coming is just deserved. But what does Jesus say about it? Jesus names the people who murdered him. And yes, the Jewish leaders were part of it. But remember, who was Jesus speaking to? Jewish fishermen, Jewish tax collectors, uh, Jewish political activists, Jewish skeptics, you know, Doubting Thomas and Simon the Zealot. Jesus said, yeah, the the chief priests are going to put me to death. But you know who else are? The Gentiles, the Romans. It was the Romans who scourged Jesus. It was the Romans who beat him. It was the Romans who crucified him. And yet I've never heard anyone say we should persecute Italians for their hand in Jesus' crucifixion. There is no biblical basis for anti-Semitism. There is no biblical basis for any sort of bigotry. There's no place for it. I'm going to get off my tangent now, and I'm going to walk over here back to the main point, all right? Why is Jesus the greatest? Because he went to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem to die. He went to Jerusalem to give himself as a sacrifice for the whole world. Jesus himself said that there are plenty of people who will die for their friends. What is it? How great is the love to die for one's enemies? The Apostle Paul wrote and said, this is the the truth that Christ died to save sinners of whom I was the chief. And while we were still his enemies, Christ died to save sinners. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to save the world. There are important figures in world history. I love history. I, I read history on my own for personal enjoyment. I am currently reading a book of history. The next book I read very likely will be a book of history. Um, I took a book of history on vacation with me uh, when we went camping. Uh, The next camping trip we take, I'll probably take another. I love history. There are important people in the world. There are people who have done great and wonderful things. No one has saved the entire world, let alone saved every—done something. I want to say this clearly. Done something that has the potential to save every soul that has ever existed or that ever will exist. Does Jesus' death and resurrection save every person? No, of course not. But it is effective for every person. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live has the opportunity for rescue, for salvation, for the full forgiveness of sins, to have their spirits who are dead in sin brought back to life in the holy love of God. What Jesus did has never been and will never be surpassed. Why is Jesus the greatest man who has ever lived? It is because of this. He went to Jerusalem, not to bring himself glory, but to give himself for others. But his disciples didn't get that. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that's an arrogant statement. That is an arrogant request. They are the disciples of Jesus. They are the servants of Jesus. They are the followers of Jesus. They're not his equals. They're not able to do what he's able to do. Anything that they have done, it is because Jesus has empowered them to do this, and yet here they are. Jesus has just explained to them his purpose to suffer, to serve, to give himself. What is it that they ask? Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, imagine a throne. The king is sitting on the throne and the people around him and next to him are the most important people after the king in the whole kingdom. And the places of greatest honor are to the right and to the left of the king. There's a false false humi- humility in their request because the place of most honor would be at the king's right hand. And the second most place of honor would be at the king's left hand. And you could see them, we don't care which. Just to be close to you would be enough. Oh. Have you ever met people that talk a little bit differently when they're pretending to be super hungrel? Uh, hungrel? S- super humble? People that talk a little differently. I, I never understood. I remember my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather uh, would pray almost in a different language. He spoke English. He had learned German as a child. He had been born in Vienna, Austria, and then when he was just a little baby, he was brought to America with the rest of the Dalhannics. But he would speak an old Shakespearean type English, King James English when he prayed. It wasn't the same. Now, I don't mean to say anything bad about my grandpa. I just think that's how he was taught. That you oh somehow speak differently when you're going to pretend to be holy or something. Oh, we don't care which it is, the right or your left. We, we just want to be near you. This is an arrogant request masked in false humility. I actually think it's helpful to examine our prayer lives. When we pray, Do we pray like this? I I think that's a worthwhile thing, to examine your prayer life. To look and say, God, have my prayers been like this? Jesus is talking about giving himself for others, and these two disciples are seeking glory and personal uh, advancement and their own personal elevation. I think it's okay to examine and, and, and check. I believe that Christians should pray from their hearts. I I really believe that. And there have been times in the history of the church where Christians were not allowed to pray publicly from their hearts. The only prayers they were allowed to pray were pre written approved ones. I do not believe that is right, that is good, or that is biblical. At the same time, we've swung the other way on the pendulum and Protestant, evangelical Christians have a tendency to disavow or mistrust or askew any sort of pre-written prayer. There are times when I pre-write a prayer for a specific purpose. I, I, I want to say something and I need it to be clear and specific. I think that's okay. There are times when I have read something, and I have just said, Lord, this is my prayer, and I have prayed it as my own, because they, the, the person who had written it conveyed in words what my, my soul and my spirit were feeling and wanting to express. It's possible that we're so used to praying selfishly, we don't know anything else, and so you need to find the written prayers of somebody else to say, yeah, that's what I'm trying to express. And until I have it in me to express that myself, this is going to have to do. Something to consider. Now, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, gives us a little more insight. Matthew wrote his gospel a little, t- little time after Mark. They do not contradict each other, but, but I think what happened, near as I can tell, There's scholarly debate about these things, but near as I can tell, Matthew saw Mark's gospel and said, yep, that's right, but I was there. I have a few more details to add. And so he added context. And what he tells us is that, yes, James and John did come before Jesus, and they did make this request, but they weren't alone. That their mother was there with them that they had somebody else going to Jesus for them. How many people do that? When we're praying, when we're going to God, how many people do that? I mean, as a pastor, I've heard this before. Pastor, can you pray for me? I love praying with people. I love praying for people. This last week, I got a couple of texts. Hey, here's this situation. Can you pray with me on this? that that we are not alone, that we can have people praying with us and praying for us. I love doing that. But I can't be your bridge to God. Your spouse can't have faith for you. Your parents or your children or your grandparents. Do you know how many people over the years I've said, where are you with God? And they said, oh, my, my grandma prays. Well, that's great that your grandma prays. Where are you with God? James and John had their mother go to Jesus for them. Jesus was right there, ready to hear from them. And what were they seeking? They were seeking greatness. Elevate us. Put us up as high as you can get. I do not believe. I have I have read the Gospel of Mark countless times. This is the second time I have taught it as a a Bible study. The more I have studied it this time around, the more I have come to see that Mark is very intentional in the way that he orders the story, in the way that he is presenting the this account of the life of Jesus. What does Jesus say? Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. If there is somebody who in heaven will sit at the right and the left of Jesus. I do not believe you know their name. That's a personal opinion, can't prove it. I don't think that Billy Graham and John Wesley will be right there next to Jesus. You can think of the heroes of the faith, uh, the people that you consider the great giants. I wouldn't be surprised, I wouldn't be surprised if sitting at Jesus' right and his left in eternity was an elderly woman, Japanese, one of the worst, in fact, it's considered the worst persecution in Christians in history. I believe it was the 14th century. There was a persecution of Christians in Japan. Someone who had not denied the faith and maybe next to her, there's a 10-year-old child from Africa. I've heard stories of children, 9, 10, 11, 12, who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. Someone we've never heard of, but who gave everything. Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I, can, I, I drink Jesus has just taught them, I am going to Jerusalem to die. Can you do that? Now, I don't think that they understood. Remember, we said this before. There was something in the disciples' brains that turned off any time that he spoke about his death and resurrection. James would be, and Jesus was right, James would be the first of the 12 apostles to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. In the city of Jerusalem, James was put to death by the sword. His brother John was the last of the 12 apostles to die. He, as far as we know, did not die a martyr's death. He did not die as a direct result of his faith in Jesus, but he lived a life of persecution, imprisoned, beaten, tormented for his faith in Jesus. James died and John suffered. Now, when the 12, verse 41, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, you think? Jesus called them together and says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to serve or sorry, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm thankful for the leaders that we have in our family of churches. I see servant leadership among our superintendent, Randy, our our board of directors, Jeremiah, who pastors our sister church in Tualatin Valley, Ryan Thorson, who pastors our sister church in Corvallis. James Carmichael, who pastors our, servant, uh, our sister church in Albany. One of, our, one of our sister churches in Albany. Mitch Lee, who's a church planter in Eugene, and we support their church plant. We still do, even during this crisis. I'm thankful for servant leaders. I'm thankful for servant leaders in our church. This isn't the case for every church, but I don't believe that we have anyone in our leadership team who isn't a servant. I hope that I serve you well. This is a challenging verse for me. I love being the pastor here. I I love being with you guys. I hope I serve you well. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Faith on Hill is not here to be served. Christians in America are not here to be served. We are to serve. I try to stay out of politics. It is so hard right now to stay out of politics. I see a lot of Christians on all sides seeking their rights, their preferences. We need to look to serve, to give up our rights. Jesus is, deserved nothing that he received. He was without sin. He never did anything wrong. He deserved nothing. He had only done good in this world. And they beat him, and they flogged him, and they spat upon him, and they lied about him, and then they crucified him. Who are we to demand any more? And just to prove the point, remember I said I believe that Mark connects these stories in a very purposeful way. It says, Then they came to Jerusalem, so they are still on their journey. They get to the city of—sorry, not Jerusalem, Jericho, which is on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. And on their way out, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging— When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So apparently, this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, has heard of Jesus. And the word is beginning to spread that Jesus is a descendant of King David. The Messiah had to be a descendant of King David, the true and the rightful King of the Jews. And this blind man acknowledges that Jesus, son of David, Jesus, the true Messiah, have mercy on me. Verse 48 says, Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling to you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Makes me think what a joyous day it will be when Jesus returns, when he begins to make things right in this world, when the healing of broken things is made final. Can't wait for that. Here's Jesus' disciples, two of his closest disciples, James and John, who have asked for a position of power and authority and of honor and of prominence, and they've sought themselves and their own position. After Jesus has said, Guys, my purpose is to come and to give up my position to save others. And then what does Jesus do? He gives time, he gives ear, he gives attention to one of the lowliest people in his society. People are rebuking this blind man. Just shut up. You're not as important. You don't deserve the attention of this great man. And Jesus says, call him over here. The world we live in is spiritually blind. And if you want to be great in this world, it is not by seeking ourselves. It's not by seeking our own good. It's not by seeking our own place. It's outside of ourselves It's others centered The world is full of the spiritually blind and the eternally destitute. But there are people crying out, have mercy. And what does Jesus say? I think this is incredibly key. He says to his disciples, call him over. Christians, that's what we do. Jesus is The thing that attracts people. It's not my job to convince anyone. It was not the disciples' job to convince Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus believed. He was crying out, have mercy. The disciples' job was to bring him over. There were many, though, who were rebuking him, who were telling him, shut up, stay quiet, get away just as there are many who rebuke the desperately lost today. Keep them out of the church. Let them clean up and look right and act right, and then they can come in. And there are still many churches that act that way. I bet this man was dirty. I bet he smelled. He was probably undereducated at the very least. And yet Jesus said, call him. Now, does that mean that Jesus isn't trying to call the rich man? No, we, we saw last week Jesus contending for the soul of the rich man. He, he loved the rich young ruler. The rich man, the poor man, the old man, the young man. The woman who has it all together, the woman whose life is a train wreck. Jesus says, call them. Greatness for us, greatness for our church is not about our building, how big we are, how how many social programs we do, although I believe in those things. I believe in doing as much as we can. Greatness is in others, serving others, giving ourselves like Jesus did, like Jesus did, call them to me. Now, I will say this. There are many churches who have great social programs. That's not what makes them great. I appreciate the social programs. I hope that we can increase that in our own church. Again, I'm going to remind you that we, as part of our social outreach, um, have supported the Backpack Buddies program. That will not be happening this year. We have to, as a church, ask God, what do you want us to do then? Because the thing we normally do is not available to us. What do we do now? Jesus said, I came to give myself as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't the greatest who ever lived just because of the kind and charitable things he did. And if that's all a church is, you know what? There are charities and nonprofits that do it better than us. Now, the church does do an incredible amount of work. I had to write a paper for school about church tax exemption. I know that's an exciting subject. But in the research, I'll tell you this, 60% 60% at least of every bed for a homeless person in America happens because of churches. And, and why I say at least is because it was a study from Baylor University, and one of the things that they cited was we actually can't tell you how much is done because a lot of what churches do is under the radar. We believe it's more. I appreciate the work churches are doing, and we should and we can, and God help us to do more but there's a lot of people that do a lot of good social work. Jesus saves our souls. And I don't want to come to somebody who's starving or who's bleeding and say, you know, God bless you, be filled. Here's a tract. If somebody's starving, I want to give them a piece of food. If somebody's bleeding, I want to give them a bandage. But I don't want to just end there. Jesus came as the suffering servant The disciples were seeking their own glory, but Jesus models what true greatness looks like. Do you want to be great? It's in others. If we just seek to serve ourselves, to have everything that makes us happy, we'll get what we get. But if we want to be truly great and experience the, the greatness that God has for his people. It's through serving others and giving up our own rights and being like our Lord Jesus. God help us to be so. Jesus invites Christians along on his mission. His mission is to be a witness of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If you haven't been on God's mission, there's no better time than right now to start. If you you don't know, let me give you some quick things you can do. You can pray. You can ask God to help you. List everything in which you think you could do better and then say, God, help me to know ways that I can grow that I'm not even seeing. Get in the Bible. Get in the Word of God. Start reading. You know where we're going to be next week. Get, start reading the book of Mark. Just read the gospel of Mark over and over. We have resources, not just Sunday mornings. We have our 20-minute Bible study podcast. I can recommend all kinds of resources too if you'd like. But uh, I'll tell you what, you can read all you want and we can pray without ceasing. But there's nothing that's going to replace stepping out in faith. And so this morning, I pray and I invite you, ask God for ways that you can step out. we have opportunities to serve here with the church. There are opportunities in our community. Maybe you just need to call somebody and say, how can I pray for you? I believe God will show us how we can serve, how we can give, how we can be generous, how we can live on his mission. Amen.